This episode of The Journal is brought to you by KPMG. At KPMG, we make the difference. It's not just something we say, it's what we do. We work closely with clients to uncover insights that illuminate opportunity, develop bold solutions that innovate industries, and create better outcomes driven by data. Brighter insights, bolder solutions, better outcomes. It's how our people make the difference. KPMG, make the difference. Since 2016, Facebook has been on the defensive. The company's faced questions about the spread of misinformation and hate speech on its platform, and accusations that online speech led to real-world violence. To defend itself, the company stuck to a playbook. Admit to Facebook's missteps and promise to do better. And no one had more practice delivering that message than Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg. We didn't take a broad enough view of our responsibility. Here he is last year testifying before Congress. And that was a big mistake. And it was my mistake. And I'm sorry. I started Facebook. I run it. And I'm responsible for what happens here. In the last few weeks, though, Zuckerberg has taken a different stance. He's playing offense, giving interviews and meeting with the president. And he capped it off with a big speech last week where he said it's not Facebook's job to police what people say. I don't think most people want to live in a world where you can only post things that tech companies judge to be 100% true. Today on the show, why Zuckerberg changed his strategy and what it means for the future of speech online. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Leinbaugh. And I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Monday, October 21st. To understand how Zuckerberg landed on the new strategy he's now promoting, you have to remember just how much backlash Facebook was facing three years ago. At the end of the 2016 election, everyone understood that it had been an extremely nasty campaign online. Jeff Horwitz covers Facebook. Everything was vitriolic. People were fighting. You know, I think dumpster fire was used frequently to describe the various platforms, both Twitter and Facebook. What started out as something people flippantly referred to as a dumpster fire was soon revealed to be something much more serious. Actual national security issues around the world. In the U.S., the government determined Russia was creating fake accounts to spread misinformation and influence the 2016 election. In India, misinformation on one of Facebook's messaging apps, WhatsApp, led to a series of mob killings. And in Myanmar, the United Nations said Facebook was a key tool to incite genocide against the country's Muslim minority. I mean, many, many people died and were driven out of their homes. Facebook was slow to realize the extent of the problem, as the companies now admitted, but we all of a sudden had a much darker read on social media. Jeff, what did Facebook specifically start to do about it? From that point onward, uh, what had been sort of an increasing promise to deal with problems turned into kind of a pretty heavy apology tour. A basic question, Mark, what happened? What went wrong? So this was a major breach of trust, and, and I'm really sorry that this happened. The company and Mark Zuckerberg personally acknowledged that uh, the company had not handled the election well, and also that there were a whole bunch of 
dangerous and problematic things on the platform that needed to get addressed. To try to prevent the spread of these dangerous things, in 2017, Facebook stepped up its efforts to moderate harmful content, like graphic violence and hate speech. And it even started labeling certain articles posted to Facebook as false. So there was a vast push to hire content moderators. So there'd be some combination of computer-driven flagging of problematic content with user-driven flagging of problematic content, and then people would actually review them manually and see sort of, should this stay up or should it go? Mm -hmm. And they set up outside fact-checkers who were going to review the factuality of viral information. And if it was wrong or misleading, then the idea was that Facebook would flag it as such, and prevent its further distribution, at least at the same rate. And they've certainly put more resources into these things than any of their competitors have. By the end of last year, Facebook had 30,000 content moderators policing what was said on the platform. But even as Facebook was stepping up its oversight of speech and publicizing those moves, Mark Zuckerberg started to hint that there were limits to how far the platform would go. And that could lead to awkward moments, like one that happened in an interview on the podcast Recode Decode. Right, so I'm Jewish, Mm -hmm. um, and there's a set of people who uh, deny that the Holocaust happened. Mark Zuckerberg said during an interview that he believed that Holocaust deniers, assuming that they legitimately held their opinion, were entitled to that opinion. At the end of the day, I don't believe that our platform should take that down because I think that there are things that different people get wrong. So Mark Zuckerberg did come out later and say that was not what he meant, that uh, he personally finds the denial of the Holocaust to be deeply offensive and that he didn't intend to defend Holocaust deniers. But I I think it did illustrate that he's sort of legitimately conflicted over how to deal with people who are have reprehensible opinions that are deeply and personally held. Comments like that didn't win Facebook many friends. And more broadly, the Apology Tour didn't seem to be having the intended effect. Facebook was getting criticism from the left and the right. People on the left didn't feel like Facebook was doing enough to police hate speech and misinformation. And on the right, there was this perception that the content moderation that was happening had an anti-conservative bias. But the reason both the left and the right cared so much is because both political parties had determined that Facebook had become too powerful. And earlier this year, some lawmakers started looking at the tools they have to rein in companies that get too powerful, antitrust laws. Some started calling for major regulations on Facebook or even to break the company up. Yes or no, and then we'll get into them. Sure. Do you view them as operating monopolies? Google. Google, yeah. Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. There was, I think, an increasingly restive field of Democratic candidates, in particular Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, that were really in favor of potentially breaking up Facebook. And they kind of started that discussion. So if your plan is enacted, do each of those companies get somewhat broken up? So what they get is the platform gets broken off from the individual companies. How does Mark Zuckerberg react to that? So... I think the clearest and um, most unfiltered reaction that we got from Mark Zuckerberg was in uh, some leaked audio um, from a Facebook meeting. It was uh, handed off to the tech website, The Verge. 
And in that leaked audio, um, Mark Zuckerberg said, quote, um, you know, I mean, if she gets elected president, then I would, I would bet that we will have a legal challenge, and I would bet that we will win the legal challenge. So I, I, does that still suck for us? Yeah. I mean, and does that still suck for us? Yeah. But, but look, at the end of the day, if someone's going to try to threaten something that existential, you go to the back and you fight. They've, you know, sort of consistently pushed back whenever Warren suggested breaking up the company or that, that you know, they were too powerful. But I think, you know, it, it hadn't been quite as, as clear and personal as that before mm-hmm. that leak. At the same time that Zuckerberg was telling his staff that he was willing to go to the mat against Warren, he was also having dinners with conservative lawmakers and pundits. Facebook says that Zuckerberg meets with all sorts of people, but... It did seem like Facebook was beginning to buttress itself on the right here. So there was a recent meeting with Trump. Um, There were recent revelations in Politico that he'd been meeting with Tucker Carlson and a number of other very conservative organizations. Facebook wouldn't comment on whether Zuckerberg was trying to appeal specifically to conservatives. The company has, for the last year and a half, been... I'd say primarily focused on placating people who feel that it's not doing enough to control its platform, and in some instances doing so in ways that infuriated conservatives. Now, I think that more recently, in the last few weeks and months, we've seen a bit of a shift there in which the company is uh, beginning to stop apologizing for things that people don't like on the platform and state that, you know, it believes that free speech requires it to not intervene. And then, about two weeks ago, Jeff started hearing about plans for a big speech where Zuckerberg would make this shift public. The apology tour was over. That's after the break. Welcome back. Mark Zuckerberg delivered his speech, which he called Standing for Voice and Free Expression, last Thursday. So the scene was a very distinguished auditorium on Georgetown University's campus. Line out the door with students, and after a brief introduction, um, Mark Zuckerberg took the stage. It's, it's really great to be here at Georgetown with all of you today. And with a bit of help from a teleprompter, um, read through a pretty lofty defense of not just Facebook's current actions, but also the principles behind them. More people being able to share their experiences and perspectives has always been necessary to build a more inclusive society. And it is our commitment to each other uh, that we hold each other's right to express ourselves and, and be heard above our own desire to always get our way in every debate. Uh, that's how we make progress together. I think the thing that was surprising to me was that Zuckerberg went for as much of a statesmanlike approach as he did. Yeah, I had the impression that he was trying to almost evoke an Obama-like cadence in the way he was talking. I think that's fair. And I think one thing that's pretty remarkable is how much work Mark Zuckerberg seems to have put into public speaking in, you know, the recent months and years. Uh, Now... Uh, Some people believe that giving more people a voice is driving division rather than bringing people together. Uh, More people across the spectrum uh, believe that achieving the political outcomes that they think matter is more important than every person 
having a voice and being heard. What do you think Zuckerberg and Facebook were saying with this speech? So I think they've pretty clearly signaled that there's only so much ground they're going to give when it comes to responding to critics that say that they have tolerated too much misinformation, hate speech, vitriol on the platform. Facebook simply is going to, at a certain point, say that, you know, rather than that it's a problem and it's going to work on it some more, that it is unable to do anything about it as a matter of principle. Mm -hmm. He also seemed to be trying to directly tie the American value of free speech to the identity of Facebook. Absolutely. So there's a couple components of that. One is um, he was sort of rallying the history of the civil rights movement and anti-war protests behind him. In times of social tension, our impulse is often to pull back on free expression. I mean, he basically said that free speech of the sort that people were now trying to restrict was key to the success of the civil rights movement and, uh, you know, was key to, say, Martin Luther King. We saw this when Martin Luther King Jr. wrote his famous letter from a Birmingham jail where he was unconstitutionally jailed for protesting peacefully. He also, though, put it in a more modern context uh, and sort of contrasted with how other governments have approached speech on the internet, um, in particular China. Now, until recently, The internet in almost every country outside of China has been defined by American platforms with strong free expression values. But there's no guarantee that these values will win out. A decade ago, almost all of the major internet platforms were American. Today, six of the top 10 are Chinese. Yeah, the the line that stood out to me is he says, If another nation's platforms set the rules... Our discourse can be defined by a completely different set of values. He's definitely made the case that America's prominence in the world and its ability to shape discourse is dependent on Facebook being this central pillar of social media. Um, In other words, if it's not us, it'll be somebody else. This speech was Zuckerberg's line in the sand. After years of promising to do more to police what's said on Facebook, Zuckerberg was now saying, enough is enough. And he highlighted three recent decisions the company'd made. One of them was its decision to not let its fact checkers police opinions. That would mean the third parties that Facebook has contracted with to sort of review content on its platform will not be able to fact check facts contained within primarily opinion-based content. So, for example, if it's an op-ed that says global warming's all a hoax, that might pass muster. So, in other words, it's a narrowing of the sorts of things Facebook's fact-checkers will even look at. Right. So, there's that. And then there's also not policing the accuracy of statements by politicians at all. Um, Facebook's been very clear that it views political speech as being already heavily scrutinized and really does not want to take a stand on what politicians should be allowed to say or not say on social media. So the company hadn't made that clear before, but recently announced that that would also apply to ads that political campaigns would run on its platform. The third decision was less of a policy change than a change in tactics. Zuckerberg said that instead of concentrating on the speech itself, Facebook would focus on making sure the speakers are who they say they are. He gave an example from the 2016 election. Much of the content that uh, those Russian accounts shared uh, was distasteful, but it would have been considered permissible political discourse if it had been shared by uh, real American citizens. 
So the real issue is that it was posted by fake accounts that were coordinating together and pretending to be people that they were not. So what they're going to try to do is, you know, invest more in removing fake accounts on Facebook and sort of, you know, what I think it calls coordinated inauthentic activity. Let's focus on the speaker and not the speech. The reaction to the speech was mixed. On the right, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy applauded the speech, calling it a, quote, heartening reminder that free expression is still the best business model in the world. Meanwhile, the daughter of Martin Luther King, Bernice King, responded shortly after the speech by stating that that she believed Mark Zuckerberg had the perils of misinformation all wrong, and in fact that her father had been assassinated in part because of misinformation. And then there was Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren. After Zuckerberg's speech, she tweeted that it, quote, shows how little he learned from 2016 and how unprepared Facebook is to handle the 2020 election. Before the speech even happened, Warren had been taking aim at Facebook's policy not to fact-check political ads. So Warren took a pretty aggressive stance by running an ad that falsely claimed that Mark Zuckerberg had endorsed Donald Trump for president. Um, This was fake. It said it was fake in the text of the ad. But Warren was making the point that letting politicians say truly whatever they want in advertisements and, you know, regardless of whether it's factual, is going to lead to a really nasty and confusing election. And, you know, Facebook ran the ad. Um, They are, um, I think, going to stand by that position. Facebook responded by saying, quote, If Senator Warren wants to say things she knows to be untrue, we believe Facebook should not be in a position of censoring that speech. So the trouble started for Facebook in many ways with the 2016 election. And now we're about a year out from the next one. So what does this all mean for 2020? So there have been a lot of elections since 2016 around the world. And I think it's fair to say that a good number of them have been marred by some level of disinformation on social media, um, whether it's the Brazilian or Indian or U.S. midterms. So in some respects, I think this is an acknowledgement by Facebook that probably it's not going to be able to, you know, uphold truth on a gatekeeperless platform. And I don't want to sound hyperbolic, but what does it mean for speech more broadly in the future? Time will tell on what the long-term effects of this. I mean, Facebook is going to still try to deal with dangerous content and threatening and harassing content on the platform. Nothing has sort of strictly changed, but I think it does mean that Facebook is going to be making a pivot towards a more libertarian approach um, to speech than it has. And, you know, as the world's largest social network or several of the world's largest social networks, it's going to have weight. On Wednesday, Mark Zuckerberg will return to Washington. He'll appear before the House Financial Services Committee in his first congressional testimony since his 2018 apology tour. Zuckerberg will most likely face questions about the company's struggling plan to launch a new cryptocurrency. But lawmakers will also have their first opportunity to question the CEO about his new stance on defending free speech. That's all for today, Monday, October 21st. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. 
Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.